If you brought your Bible today, digital or analog, you're going to want to open it to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9, as we continue in a series that we have entitled The Unbelievable Gift. We're studying this amazing gift that God has given to a dark and often hopeless world. Last week, we looked at how God has invaded the darkness with incarnate light, light that has become flesh in the midst of a dark and broken world. You can follow along uh, using the YouVersion Bible app. You may want to do that as we look through a variety of passages today and study another aspect of this wonderful gift that God has given us. But let's read together from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And this is God's holy, inerrant, beautiful, sufficient, and clear word. May he add his blessing to its reading and its proclamation. I want to invite you to think about what it means to encounter a wonderful counselor. His name shall be Wonderful Counselor. We're given a a string of, of names that are given to this incarnate light that has come into the world, Jesus, God's only Son. Now, I don't know how you feel about the word counselor. Uh, for many of us, it might bring about anxiety. Uh, that certainly was true in my life for a lot of years. Uh, for years, my wife and I desperately needed to go to marriage counseling. And we didn't do it. Now, that's not my wife's fault. It was my fault. I was too prideful, too arrogant, too unwilling to listen to what other people had to say about how we could have a healthy and whole and peace-filled marriage. And God had to break me down and cause our marriage to almost come to a place where it was broken uh, completely for me to get to the place where when somebody spoke truth into our lives and that I would be forced to go to a counselor. Now, to this day, I'll be honest, I'm not sure that counselor did much good. But 
what did change in my life was an orientation to the idea that other people could speak truth into my life in a way that would radically change me. And that sent me on a course of transformation that led eventually, by God's grace, to a transformed marriage. Now, many of you may have a fear or a doubting whenever you hear the word counselor. If somebody said to you, hey, here's a great Christmas gift that I'm going to give you. I've paid for you to have 10 sessions with a professional counselor. You might think that's not a very good gift. (laughs) What are you saying? That I need help. And the answer to that would probably be yes. Yes, you do need help. But I want to alleviate a little bit of your tension whenever you think of this wonderful counselor that God has given to us. And I want you to recognize that the word counselor here in Hebrew, yaetz, does not normally mean a therapeutic counselor. In fact, in no case in the Old Testament does the word counselor mean a therapeutic counselor, like a psychiatrist, a psychotherapist, or a marriage and family counselor. Uh, it, It applies to the advisors to a king. In every case in the Old Testament... The word yaetz and it's in its root form and counsel and noun and, in, and, and to counsel in its verb forms, it always means to give advice or counsel typically uh, to a, a leader, to a person that has to make complex and difficult decisions. Now we can think of that today in terms of how we might think about the president of the United States has counselors, we often call them advisors, around him to advise him on the complex decisions that he has to make, all right? But I want to encourage you to realize this, that when we think about this word today, wonderful counselor, this title for the incarnate light that has come into this dark world, that actually both meanings are present in Scripture. The truth is we do need someone to deal with our inward brokenness and also to guide us through the complexities of life. It's not just kings and presidents who need a counselor. We need counselors. So that's going to be our outline today. We're going to talk about why we need counselors, the need for every one of us to have a counselor, and why that matters to us. And then we're going to see how there is this this reality of a gift of a counselor that has been given to us by God. And then we're going to take some time and look at why this is a wondrous gift, a wonderful gift that we can rejoice in and delight in. So, Our need for God's counsel, the gift of God's counsel, and the wonder of God's counsel. When Isaiah says that God has given us this gift, a son that has been given to us, that his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, you and I might, as I've mentioned, rebel. We might rebel out of anxiety or fear. What happens if somebody knows truths about me? If somebody gets into my life, what if they advise me to do something I don't really want to do? But I want to I challenge you to recognize that the Bible lays out a, a, a bunch of reasons Uh, as to why we all need counsel. And my family can tell you that yesterday when I was finishing up this sermon, I was just honestly almost like depressed and sad because I couldn't 
find a way to, to enumerate in a short length of time everything that Scripture tells us about why we need a counsel. So I picked out 12, right? Just 12. Just 12 reasons that you and I need a counselor. Let me give them to you uh, in this order. The first reason is this. A lot of us don't go to counselors because we think that intellectually we're just as smart as somebody else and our reason is just as good as somebody else's reason. That was, that was one of the main reasons I didn't want to go see a therapeutic counselor. I thought I was just as smart as these guys, and what did they know that I didn't know? Well, the truth is I wasn't as smart as those guys, and I didn't actually have reason on lots of areas of life that was as good as theirs. Scripture says this in Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool. Wow. Whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered or saved. Saved from the brokenness of this life. So we need counselors because our intellect and reason are compromised by the fall that has afflicted all of the human race. But it's not just our reason and our intellect that are broken. Our emotions and our desires are corrupted by the sin nature that now indwells us after the fall. Jeremiah famously has said, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We can't just trust our emotions any more than we can trust our intellect or our reason. The truth is, most of us make decisions based on how we feel about a situation. And the problem is our feelings are corrupted by the twistedness that comes with the fall in this world. And neuropsychiatrists tell us that most human choices are led by instinct. That we actually make the decisions we're going to make in most cases almost automatically. We may sit around and reason about it or argue about it or debate about it, but a lot of our choices are made instinctually. And the problem is that our instincts are actually broken as well. And they lead us not to life and wholeness and peace, but rather to death and failure. In the book of Proverbs, the book of, that God has poured forth so much of his wisdom into to tell us how we might live, it, we find there it is written over and over again, there's a way that seems right to a man. It's instinctually the way we need to go, but the result of it is what? Death. There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. So our reason has fallen. Our, in, our intellect is broken, right? Our emotions are corrupted. And our instinctual choices lead us not to life and wholeness, but on their own, they will inevitably lead us farther and farther away from God. You say, but, you know, Pastor, you're talking about people that don't have good intentions, over and over again, whenever I'm talking to people about sin in their own lives or even talking about sin in my life, what we always come back to is say, well, my intentions are good. I intended to do good. And that may or may not be true. But the problem is that Scripture says, apart from a relationship with Jesus Christ, wherein all of us is being transformed, all of us have impure or mixed motives. If you go back to Genesis chapter 6, you'll see this, this 
God's diagnosis of the human race and our intentions, right? The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, but God knew they intended better. Now, that is not what it says in Genesis 6-5. It says that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Our intentions are always to exalt ourselves, to not trust God's word, to believe that we can replace God's judgment with our own, and to buy into the idea that we can be a God of our own making. Our intentions are corrupted. And our our problems are even worse than that. Our self-assessment is very weak. We, We look around and we go, well, I know myself. You know, nobody could know me like I know myself. And in one sense, that might be true. It's, I, I don't know and can't discern perfectly anybody else's motivations, and you can't either. In fact, a lot of times when we do that, we do what psychologists call projection, right? We take our own fears and anxieties and we project them into somebody else's mind and into their life. We say, if I did that, I would, I would be doing it because I had this motivation. Therefore, I see you doing this and you must have the same motivation that I would have, right? Or we assume the worst of somebody. And, but we know ourselves. So we say, well, my self-assessment is strong. But scripture says that all of us, our self-assessment is actually weak. Uh, Proverbs 21 verse 2 puts it this way. Every way of a man is right in his own eyes. Every one of us thinks we're right. But God weighs the heart. God goes, I get it. You think you're right, but you don't even know your own heart. I'm the one who's weighing your heart. In another place in Proverbs it says God uh, is weighing our spirit, our inmost being. So God is saying to us, listen, I get it that you think you're right, but I'm in the business of assessing your situation. And and in fact, that's what scripture reminds us of also, that our situational awareness is low. We don't actually understand the world, the time, the circumstances that we are in. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, wrote this in Ecclesiastes 10, 14. He says, a fool multiplies words. You want to see the fools? Watch your news. Watch the analysts. Always predicting, always analyzing, always trying to come up with what's really happening in the world. Now, in some senses, that's not a bad thing. We need people to help us understand and see the world we're in. And experts do have expert knowledge for certain reasons. And they might be experts geopolitically or scientists might be experts. But we have learned over this year, not that we shouldn't trust any experts at all, but that experts have a limit to their knowledge. They have a limit to what they know is going to happen, right? A fool multiplies words, and Solomon goes on to say, No man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him. The problem is, you and I don't know what will happen tomorrow. We could take the sum of every day that has happened to us, and even if we had perfect recall, perfect knowledge, perfect wisdom, perfect insight, and perfect intentions, you know what our problem still would be? We don't know what's coming tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. 
So our awareness of our situation is limited by the fallenness and brokenness of the human mind and heart and our creatureliness. The way that God has made us. We're not intended to have the knowledge of all of time and space. Job thought he knew what God's problem was. He thought he knew what the situation was. And he accused God of being unjust. After God rebukes him in Job chapter 40 and 41, Job at the end of the book of Job says this, mocking himself. He says, I said to you, God, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? God, you don't really know what you're doing. Have you ever felt like telling God that? God, you don't really know what you're doing? And Job goes on to say, I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I didn't know what you were doing. Our problem, brothers and sisters, so often that causes us to run away from the counsel of God is that we assume our intellect, our emotions, our intentions, our reason, our self-assessment, and our assessment of our situation is so good, we've got the solution. And all of that leads us farther away from God. The truth is we value our own opinions and perspectives too highly. Too highly. Proverbs 12, 15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice or counsel. A fool thinks, I've got it. I don't need anybody else to tell me what to do. I've got it figured out. Now, can I just say here, I don't meet very many people who are actually that bold. They just reject every piece of counsel they actually get. Well, I know I don't know everything, but I'm not listening to that guy or that gal or this person or God's word or anything like that. And they end up doing the same thing. We, we value our own opinions and perspectives too highly. Scripture tells us that a lack of godly counsel inevitably leads us to two different destinations, both of which have the, uh, uh, come together. They, they, a lack of counsel leads us to failure. In Proverbs 15.22, without counsel, plans fail. But with many advisors, they succeed. If we're wondering why we're hitting the same places of failure over and over again, might it be that we're not listening to God's counsel or to godly counsel? Another place that Scripture points us to is it says, if we're not willing to listen to godly counsel and to God's counsel, we'll find ourselves not only failing, but we will find ourselves in spiritual bondage. We'll find ourselves in bondage to things that, that grip and hold our lives and we wonder how we got there. The psalmist describes that in Psalm 107 verses 10 through 11. It says, Some set in darkness and in the shadow of death. Remember we talked about that last week and how we need incarnate light to come into the place of darkness and death and the shadow of death. Prisoners in affliction and in irons. 
Why? Why are they in bondage? Why are they in darkness? Why do they live under the shadow of death? For they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. You know how I hear this as a pastor? All the time it comes down to this. I know what God's word says, but. I know what God's word says, but. I'm the exception. I'm different. This doesn't apply to me here now. I'm the person who doesn't need to do what God tells me to do because I've got a different situation. And if only God would show up here, I'm sure I could explain it to him and convince him that his word is insufficient to apply to this situation. And we find ourselves in spiritual bondage to things that we did not realize would take over our lives. And we want to know why. Well, Scripture says because we've spurned the counsel of the Most High. And here's another problem that we have and why we need godly counsel. Wicked, godly, wicked, ungodly counsel is plentiful in this world. If you read, take a concordance, go home, uh, do an electronic search on your Bible app, and look up the word counselor, and you'll find that there were plenty of good counselors. David had good counselors. One of them was named Ahithophel. Uh, Solomon had some good counselors around him, men that he trained up in wisdom to give him good counsel. But Solomon's son, Rehoboam, listened to the foolish counsel of bad counselors and ended up dividing God's kingdom and splitting the, the entire nation that was supposed to be united as one. Worse, there were kings who came along who had truly wicked, not just foolish, but wicked counselors who guided them to do greater and greater wickedness. Ahaziah the king listened to the counsel of his own mother who led him into the ways of darkness, into spiritual bondage, and led his entire kingdom into doing great wickedness. Folks, the philosophies and philosophers of this world and the people that you know that aren't seeking and following their own godly counsel, guess what? They want you to do what they advise as well. Many of them are just foolish and others are inherently wicked and want to lead you farther away from God. You need God's counsel because the world is full of wicked, ungodly counsel, but none of that will ever lead to God's blessing. Psalm 1, verse 1, says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. It's specifically saying, don't listen to the people who are inherently wicked, who are caught up in their own sin, and who view the world through a lens of cynicism and skepticism. Those people are ungodly counselors, and you will not find the blessed life listening to them. You need to recognize that the world is full of this wicked counsel. You could go to man-made religions 
and you can go to the idols of this world, the things that give you your, what you think will be significant security and satisfaction, and they will not lead you to a whole, peace-filled, delight-filled, joy-filled life. They'll lead you to death and emptiness and bondage. More than that, they will shape you. So often we think that we can play around with the idols of this world, valuing the same things the world values, having the same heart that the world has, and it won't change us at our core. I'm just going to go do this little wicked thing and worship this wicked thing the world worships, and it doesn't change me. But that is not what Scripture teaches us. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but they don't speak. They have no no true counsel to give you. They have eyes, but don't see. They don't see and know what is happening in this world. They have ears, but they can't hear you. They have noses, but don't actually smell. There is no aroma of God about them. They have hands, but don't have the capability of embracing you, so they don't feel. They have feet, but they don't walk, so they never come near you. And they don't make a sound in their throat. And then listen to this. Verse 8, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. If you and I trust in the idols of this world, if we are looking for the same things to give us significant security and satisfaction that the world does, we will get changed by trusting in those things. We will become like them. And by the way, God is actively in the business of disappointing the world. As long as the world is seeking other gods and seeking things that are ungodly, God is going to deliberately frustrate the plans and the counsel of the nations. God wants to frustrate the plans of the ungodly. He's not just passively letting the counsel of the ungodly sometimes come true because of the nature of the world in which he created or his common grace in this world. No, God is actively frustrating the counsel of the nations. Have you ever followed advice that you thought maybe was good? You read a self-help book and it led you to a place of just emptiness and frustration. Have you ever wondered why it didn't work? It didn't work because it wasn't God's counsel. And God is actively opposed to any counsel that doesn't put him in the center of its reality. Psalm 33 verses 10 through 11 says this, The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord alone stands forever, the plan of his heart to all generations. Are you beginning to get a sense of why you and I need a counselor? Let me give you one more reason. Because God alone is the completely trustworthy counselor. God alone. No matter how godly some people are, no matter how much they base their wisdom on God's word, it will always in the end have some measure of imperfection to it. Now, that's true on this side of eternity, okay? Because here, we're still in the presence of sin, though sin's penalty has been removed by God's grace through Jesus Christ. 
right? Since power has been set free from us. And, and, and we might provide godly, good counsel. And God intends for his church through and based on the working of his word and by the power of the spirit to provide godly counsel to one another. But it will never be perfectly trustworthy. Because God alone is perfectly trustworthy. He is the one that you can always, always go to for right counsel through His Word, through His Spirit. Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 7 say this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. I've given you a bunch of reasons to be very suspicious of yourself, right? Be not wise in your own eyes. Brothers and sisters, you and I need this gift of God's counsel. So we've talked about the need, and I I told you I could go on, believe me. I cut literally like five pages from my preparation notes. No joke, all right? I could go on, but I want you to get a sense of our need here, all right? But let's talk about what God's done about our need. He's given us this unbelievable gift, right? Isaiah 9, 6, For to us a child is born, a son is given, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. God has given us his counsel and his wisdom and his advice in the form of a baby. In the form of human flesh. See, we need this because we can't actually know God's mind, God's plan, or God's will apart from his revelation of himself. We needed the word to become flesh so that we might know what true wisdom is. Scripture says this, For who has known the mind of the Lord or been his counselor? None of us should think that we know better than God. And none of us has actually approached God to actually know him fully apart from God coming and breaking in to our spiritually darkened minds with his light so that we can see and know the truth. He sent his son because God has true counsel and understanding. Job got this part right earlier on in his time of brokenness. He says, with God are wisdom and might. He has counsel and understanding. And the way it's emphasized there is is sort of like he alone has counsel and understanding. That's perfect, right? And here's the thing you and I need to get. His counsel, his plans, his will, it's always going to seem odd. Our minds, our emotions, our intentions, our situational understanding and our self-understanding are always weak, imperfect, and broken, right? So if God comes up with a different plan to bring grace and truth about in our lives, why would we think that, our, that God's plan should match our plan? But that's what we do, right? We think that God's plan ought to fit the way we think things ought to go. God, you've got it wrong. Something must be wrong because you're not doing what I know to be good. And God's looking at us going, you guys don't have a clue. 
God's ways are always different from ours. His counsel is different from ours. His thoughts are different from ours. That's what Isaiah is going to say later on in Isaiah 55. My thoughts are not your thoughts, says God. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. The reason God's way always seems strange to us is because it's the opposite of the way the humans would do things. He sent his son to a backwater village descending to leave all of his, his glory behind in the flesh to live a life that no one would pay attention to for 30 years and to flash across the screen of human history for three brief years and then to let him be murdered and die for you and me. None of us would have come up with that. That would not be our plan. And that's God's plan to change the world. Folks, one of the things we have as Christians is we understand that God's ways are different from our ways. So we go to him for counsel saying, God, I know it's probably the opposite of what I think. So let me, let me come to your word. Let me come to your, and, and cry out for your spirit's counsel. Let me come to godly counsel and say, how do I view this, this situation, this decision, this matter that's at hand, this brokenness in my life? Because it's probably radically different from what I would come up with. And here's some more good news. God is in the business of working everything in our lives to fulfill His will. Did you know that? Everything in human history, every bit of matter, every moment of time has been bent and ordered by God to fulfill His plan, His counsel, His will. There is no random moment. There is no random action of matter. Everything has been fit to his will. Paul writes to the Ephesians, puts it very bluntly, Ephesians 1.11. Him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. And here's more good news. That God who's bending everything there is in this universe to fulfill his plan, he delights to give you and me counsel. He's not reluctant. There's no fee. You don't have to sit in a waiting room waiting for somebody to come and give you permission to enter into a room and then listen to him for 30 minutes. And then he says after 30 minutes, hey, I'm going to bill you for an hour. That's, you don't have to do that. You don't have to go to a life coach and have that life coach, you know, tell you how he, you could become like that person. No, God himself delights to give you his counsel. He wants to, you to know his counsel. Psalm 32 verse 8, God says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. God wants to teach you the way you should go. His eye is upon you and he wants you to know what his plan is for your life. But you know what it requires? There's no fee for God's counsel. But there is an entrance requirement. 
Humility. See, what kept me from going to counselors was pride. And the humble, they know all those things that I listed earlier. They know, they know their motivations are mixed up. They know that their reason is imperfect. They know their emotions aren't trustworthy. They know that the wicked are giving them bad counsel. They know all of those things. And they desperately run to the God who delights to give them his counsel and say, I get it, I don't have the answers. I don't know what to do. But the prideful will never seek God's counsel. And when they hear it, they will reject it and assume that it applies to somebody else in some other situation. Psalm 25.9 says this, that God leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. It's the humble who get God's counsel. The price for entrance to God's counsel is your humility, your willingness to acknowledge your weakness, your need for His grace. And into this kind of a world full of all kinds of of misunderstandings about God and life and bondage and darkness and the shadow of death and everything else, God sends us wisdom in the form of a person. Wisdom himself shows up in Isaiah 11, uh, speaking to the children of Israel. This is 700 years before Jesus Christ, okay? 700 years. Isaiah says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. In other words, the kingdom of David is going to be cut down. It will not be a beautiful tree, which has been portrayed. But there will come a shoot out of the stump. Ken Halterman and I used to have this, this tree that we battled at the old Niblick property. Every time we cut it down, uh, we would be like, man, we got that thing. It's dead. I mean, we, we poured poison into that thing. We drilled into it. We, we would whack it down. You know, six months later, that thing would have like shoots coming out of it. And it was like lifting up the side of the property. You remember, Ken? I, I hated that plant. One day, Halterman... By the way, just to finish this story, Wendy Halterman hooks a chain to the sucker and drives his, his Dodge pickup, which is now uh, Gaynell's uh, Lord's Chariot. He, he takes that thing and he just, like, with rubber tires spinning, everything else, he just guns it and releases the brake and goes flying. And this giant stunt comes flying across the sky and, like, bounds and hits the back of the truck, which is why there's a dent in the back of that tail cam. <laughs> But, that's how you get rid of a stump, right? But God says, this stump will not be gotten rid of. There will be a shoot that comes up from it. And it will come from the shoot of Jesse, David's father. And a branch from its roots shall bear fruit. And what is it? The spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. In other words, there is something coming that is full of God's spirit, a person. And then it goes on to say the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Just listen to what God just promised us. The Spirit of God Almighty will come into this world. It will be the Spirit of wisdom and understanding of every situation. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge of every situation. And at the middle of it is this holy fear of God that we all need. And of course we know 
That's who Isaiah was talking about. Not just in Isaiah 11, but Isaiah 9. The one who should be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Son that shall be given to us. Paul's going to say to the Corinthian church that we as Christians are in Christ Jesus through His grace, through His undeserved grace and mercy. We are in Christ Jesus. And then he's going to say in 1 Corinthians 1.30, we're in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom from God. Wisdom shows up. Righteousness. How do I know the right thing to do in every case? Because Jesus shows up. And as we follow him, he always did the right thing. Sanctification, becoming holy like God. That's Jesus. Redemption. Taking all of our broken past and making it into something beautiful. All the bad choices that we've made. Everything where we followed our own counsel. God's in the business of taking that and turning that into something beautiful and new where his glory gets displayed. That is the wisdom of God showing up in this world. So we've seen why we need God's counsel. We've seen God's gift of counsel, which shows up. And I want us to think for a few minutes about the wonder of God's counsel. Because this is not just a counselor. This is a wonderful counselor. It's really the wonderful counselor. It's not like, oh, this, this person helped me out. They might be able to help you. No, no, no. This is the counselor that can help everyone in all languages, at all times, at all places. Isaiah 28 says this about God. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. You'll never find a situation that God cannot speak into. So can I point out to you a few ways that this counsel is so wonderful? Do you ever feel like you're not heard? I was taking some training uh, online this last year with Dr. Dan Allender uh, from uh, uh, the Seattle School of Psychology and Theology. I think Paige was on this particular training as well. And, and they were talking, he and Kathy Lorazol from the center, and they were talking about how bad we are as human beings at listening to other people. And Dr. Allender pointed out that studies have shown that if, if somebody breaches, brings up a topic, that something less than 10% of the conversations that follow that topic uh, will include three questions from the person who's hearing. We can't even make it through three questions about a topic, if maybe even significance in somebody's life, before we start spouting our opinions. Have you ever felt like you went to somebody for counsel and they, they didn't hear you? That happens to all of us, right? But God always hears us in our brokenness and in our bondage. The psalmist says, evening and morning and at noon I utter my complaint and moan and he hears my voice. This counselor that God has sent to us will never fail to hear us. But he doesn't just fail to not, not fail to hear us. He knows and understands our actions and our words. We, we feel like if we have to come to somebody, we have to explain to them what we've done and where we've come from and what we've said. What if we go to a counselor who already knows all of that? He already knows all of it. It doesn't mean we don't have to own it or talk about it. But, but the psalmist says in Psalm 139, verses 1 through 4, 
Oh Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. You are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. Can you imagine going to a counselor that knows what you're going to do before you do? See, this counselor, he knows and understands our unique nature and the experiences that have nurtured our character. We, have you ever tried to explain yourself why you react in certain ways to certain situations? Maybe there's a childhood trauma or a brokenness that's in your life. Just this morning, I was trying to explain to Tracy why I feel like I'm reacting some of the ways that I am uh, to, to the death of our dog uh, and why this grief seems so deep to me. And it's, it's hard for me to articulate the words to come up with. But what if there's a counselor who knows everything that shaped us? In fact, knows our very nature of our being. Psalm 139 verses 15 through 16. The psalmist says this, my frame was not hidden from you, O God, when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the earth. God knows what we were meant to be and what we were shaped to be. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. There's not a single thing that has happened to you in your life that God does not know and understand better than you. There's nothing about your unique genetic code, your unique nature, unique character, the way that he created you to image him forth uniquely in this world that God doesn't know intimately and better than you and I. This counselor knows us. And he has been and will be with us in every situation. We read these words earlier at the beginning of our service. Where shall I go from your spirit or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. You and I have never been to a place where God has not been. And we will never go to a place where God is not already there. He will be with us in every situation. So it's like taking your counselor with you into every moment of your life. Every moment of rejoicing, every, every moment of, of greatness in your marriage, in your family life, in your workplace. God has been there in every bit of pain and difficulty and brokenness you've experienced. God has been there ahead of you. And that means that no matter how spiritually or situationally dark our experiences have been or are, he can always bring light into our reality. The psalmist says this, If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. The darkness is winning, God. You ever felt like that in your life? Like all the brokenness is winning? The darkness is winning. And, and I'm going to be surrounded and taken over by night. The light about me will be night. Even the things I thought were good are turning dark. But, the psalmist says, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Even in the darkest moments, this counselor that God has given us shines his incarnate light into our reality. There's not the, the single dark moment of human history that God cannot and will not shine his light into. 
And that means we can trust Him with our deepest secrets, our most profound brokennesses, our most precious dreams. We can trust Him. The psalmist cries out, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. God, come into the, to the, all the things I'm not willing to talk to anybody else about. I'm inviting you into this place of my life because I can trust you. You know, they say that many people go to counselors, therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists, and they're always hiding, trying to manage our image, right? I did that with my counselors when we went for, for marriage counseling, always trying to make myself look better. Really good counselors are really good at burrowing into your dark places, right? That's part of what they do. But we can trust God to go there. We can reveal to Him our sins and ask Him to lead us out of them. That's what the psalmist does in verse 24 of Psalm 139. He says, See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. God, find those places where I'm not doing what you want me to do and lead me out of them. Isaiah relays this promise from God in Isaiah 42. God says, you, you may feel like you're spiritually blind, like you don't know what to do. God says, I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. Did you hear that promise? God's going to lead you. He wants to do it. He will never forsake you. You say, but, but surely he's going to look down on me in my weaknesses and in my temptations. One of the reasons, brothers and sisters, that wisdom became flesh, that be entered into this world within a body is so that you can I can know that our counselor can sympathize with us in all our weaknesses and temptations. Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Think about that. There has never been a sin you have been tempted to do that Jesus was not tempted to do. So he comes to us in the flesh so that we might know that we have a high priest who is sympathetic to us, though he himself is not sinful. And he doesn't condemn us for our sins, for there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If we have come to him confessing our sins, his blood is sufficient to wash us clean and to set us free. And he has borne our guilt, our shame, our condemnation, and the penalty for our sins. So there's no condemnation when you go to this counselor. He's not going to look down on you. He's going to sympathize with you. 
but he will not leave us in our sins. Many people go to counselors, psychiatrists, therapists. They go to advisors looking for somebody to approve the plans they have already made. They go to counselors looking for somebody just to sympathize with them and to tell them that they need to continue in this way. Uh, you know, years ago when we had small children, we had other parents in our church that we had at the time in Orange County, and they would come to Tracy and they would say, your children are well-behaved, they're orderly, they're doing this and this. We want our children to be like that. And Tracy would say, well, then do this. And then you know what they did? Not one of them ever did it. And then they would be like, I don't know Why? My life is like it is. And they wanted to complain and they would be in mom groups and they would be complaining about why their children were behaved. And they would always come back and say, well, your children must just be different. No, not true. You're different. Because many of us don't actually want to do what God or godly counsel are telling us to do. We want somebody just to rubber stamp what we're doing. To sympathize with us, but not leave us, but not change us. Guess what? You know what you call that when you go to a therapist who leaves you in your brokenness and in your sin? They're either a fraud who's bilking you of money, or they're bad at their job. I remember one time hearing an interview with a famous actress, and she had been in therapy for eight years, she publicly said in this television show. And this interviewer, this renowned interviewer says to her, what, what are you doing in therapy for eight years? And she says, well, I'm a slow learner. And what I thought was you have really bad counselors. The God who provides godly counsel, he never leaves you in your sin. He's sympathetic with you in your temptation, but he is holy and righteous. And he is not going to leave you in your sin and in your brokenness. He's not going to leave you in your foolishness and say, well, you go figure it out. <clears throat> He's not going to sit there and just listen to you. He's going to lead you out of the brokenness, out of the darkness, out of your sin. And he will free you from your bondage to those sins. In Hebrews 2, 17 through 18, we find that Jesus was made like his brothers, that's you and me, like brothers and sisters, in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. He pays the penalty for our sins. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God is never going to leave you in your own brokenness. In temptation, he will always provide a way out. In your brokenness, he will lead you to a place of healing. He will do that which is transformative in your life because he is in the business of redeeming your life. So brothers and sisters, I want you to see the wonder of this counselor. And I want to close with an invitation. An invitation for you to go to a counselor. This Advent season, with whatever is breaking your heart, with whatever fears you have, with whatever anxieties or frustrations you have, with whatever you don't know what to do with, whatever decisions you have to make, come to the counsel that we find in God alone perfectly. Come to the wondrous counselor. He's inviting you to come. And you know what you will find? Grace and mercy.
Hebrews 4.16, with confidence we can draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Are you tired, anxious, frustrated? Come to Him and you'll find rest. He's inviting you to come to Him. He's saying, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I will give you rest, He says. Are you dissatisfied? You're looking for something to fill your life with? You think it's going to be found in some promotion, some job change, some uh, relational change, and you think, boy, if I just get this, then I'll finally be happy? Do you know that will never work? But you can come to Him, and He will satisfy you Himself. He's the author of satisfaction. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. No counselor on earth can promise you that. But the God of the universe has. So this Advent, as you face a dark world, as we await the return of our coming King, let's fly to Him, the wonderful counselor. Let's pray. Father God, take now the weakness of our own words, our own shallow understanding. Reshape us, make us anew. We ask that this Advent season, you would compel us to come unto you, the wise and perfect counselor, that in all things you might be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.